right. We have been in a series on the Corinthian letters of Paul. In that series, his focus in the first letter is really on unity. Unity of the body as a holy community. And uh, the Corinthians were divided. They were divided over many issues. And he systematically addresses those. He talks about their division over the ministers. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. He talks about their tolerance of sin uh, in their midst, which is disrupting their unity, even though they don't, they're not aware of it. Uh, he then uh, talks to them about some issues that they've addressed. Uh, one of those is marriage and should we marry during a time of persecution. And then he talks about food sacrifice to idols and how should they address that. In every one of these, talking about knowledge that puffs up and wisdom that has a spirit of humility and self-limitation for the benefit of the other. In doing this, he uh, addresses um, another aspect of the unity of Christ um, in that he talks about being connected to the Lord, and he talks about the communion of the Lord and the Last Supper in that we are joined to one another and to the Lord in those rituals. In the present section that we're in, chapters 12, 13, and 14, he continues that theme of unity by addressing spiritual gifts. And he explains that the difference between their pagan past and their spiritual present is the Spirit of God dwelling in them communally. Uh, individually as well, but in the spirit of God being in them, he is, he is manifesting himself and joining them to God and to each other. I talked about this before, just want to mention it. In their pagan past, the Gentiles of Corinth uh, would go before an idol of wood or stone or metal and thought that that God was communicating to them. He talks about, he says, you know how you were led, however you were led. Because they couldn't do anything. They have eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear. But the reality was they would take the circumstances and interpret that as the will of the gods. That's paganism in a nutshell. You don't look at circumstances to understand what God wants. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I navigate the circumstances by the word of God. I don't interpret the word of God or the will of God by the circumstances I find myself in. That's a major error in the, in the church and to some extent in the Messianic movement as well. So Paul says you were, you were following these dumb idols, but I want you to know that you speak Jesus as Lord because the spirit of God is in you. He prompts you in that. The spirit is in us and he has gifted us and manifest himself in us so that there are various ministries and various parts of the body that are a manifestation of the spirit. And he says, one can't say to the other, I don't need you. And one can't say, because I'm this part and not that part, I don't belong. He's talking about this unity of the body that needs to be done. And then to make sure that they don't get hung up on those, he gives us chapter 13, which is the one we looked at last time, where he says, let me tell you a better way. And that better way is love. Love is about the other, not about the self. Love is eternal, while all other things, including 
faith and hope are of this creation and this time. And at one point when the hope, the promises of God are fulfilled, faith will no longer be needed. Those will pass away, but love will be there because it's eternal. The greatest of these, Paul says, is love. So that brings us to chapter 14, which we'll look at today, which is particularly significant for two reasons. It's significant because it's part of what we've been talking about in having you uh, participate more and more in your homes and with each other in terms of ministry. And it directly relates to both the house ministry and the Havarot setup that that, uh, Rabbi Dowerman has talked to us about that we'll be talking more about in the future. Uh, This chapter is critical for understanding that. So we begin with uh, chapter 14, verse 1. The apostle says, Pursue love, yet desire or be zealous for the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. This is a fascinating chapter and a very misunderstood chapter. Its context is 12 and 13. It shouldn't be read independent of that. So Paul says, pursue love, desire those spiritual gifts, but there's a priority to prophecy. Now, he's about to address the priority of spiritual gifting in the context of the love which he has just described. And he chooses two of them. He'll mention others, but he'll speak speak of two of them specifically. Prophecy and tongues. Now, prophecy is speaking forth The truth of God, that is the word of God. The scriptures are the word of God and that which is understood among the community of faith as being the the tradition of that is what he's talking about. He's talking about a mental, cognitive, spiritual understanding of truth that is part of the prophetic office. We have a tendency to think of prophecy only in the sense, only in the sense of foretelling something. That's included because obviously God knows the end and the beginning. And the prophets do talk about the days are coming when this will happen. But much of what the word of God is and the office of the prophet is to correct the misunderstandings of what God has already said. So he talks about prophecy. He's going to put that at the top of the list. And the second one he's going to talk about is tongues. Now tongues is speaking in another language. Paul refers to this as the languages of men and of angels. So don't get hung up on its only human languages. If we look at the context, and you'll see it as we talk about it, it's primarily used in prayer. And the content is predominantly testimonies of the good things that God has done, as you see in the Psalms. And we'll see him referring to these things. He's not actually teaching about prophecy and about tongues, though he will talk a little more about tongues because of their misunderstanding and misuse of it. Um, And that seems to be a problem that we have today. So let's take a look at it, verses 2 through verse 4. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Let me remind you 
that the reason Paul is talking about this, earlier he said, if a man is praying or prophesying, his head should be uncovered. If a woman is praying, her head should be covered. If she is praying or prophesying, he's using these same two concepts in this context. So he's talking about when we're gathered together as an assembly. Um, He says, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Oh, I didn't do verse 3, sorry. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, Paul's drawing a contrast here. The contrast is that the person who is speaking in tongues is speaking to God and he is, for the most part, unaware even himself of what he's saying. Uh, But his spirit is being edified. The one who prophesies, the one who's doing kind of what I'm doing now, and as we got a word of exhortation and encouragement from Rabbi Stewart earlier, that those things edify the body. They build up the body. We're speaking to men. So it's a clear distinction here that Paul wants to contrast, and that's his focus, not the issue of prophecy and tongues. The issue is self-edification versus body edification. That's his point. So, spiritual gifts can benefit the individual or the community. Paul says when you gather, the focus is on the community, not the individual. Okay? Very important. So, the one who edifies the congregation is greater than the one who edifies himself. Tongues cannot do this by itself, and that's the critical point. If the tongue can be interpreted then the praise being given by the one speaking in tongues can be shared by those who hear it. And then it rises to the point of edification of the group. Very important to keep that in mind because uh, there is a tendency among those who emphasize tongues to think of it as a highly individualistic aspect. And it is in private prayer, but it is not in communal prayer. So let's move now to verses 6 through 12. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or prophecy or of teaching? Now, again, this verse is often misunderstood uh, to say that tongues is revealing or knowledge or that. He's contrasting these. Tongues is a language that no one understands. No matter what you're saying, it's not going to do you any good. But if you use a language that people understand for revelation and for encouragement and for teaching, then the group is benefited. And so Paul talks about that. It would be terrible to have somebody come who's, who's Chinese, speaks no English, and none of us speak Chinese. And we say, we're going to have a testimony from our Chinese brother or sister, and they get up and they do their testimony, I would imagine the testimony is wonderful, but it would do us no good. And that's his point. That if tongues is done without any understanding of what's going on, it has no use in a communal setting. So then he says these these words. Yet even lifeless things, 
a flute or a harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tone, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? If the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. So his point is, language is for communication. Someone else has to be able to understand that language for the communication to operate. Sound without meaning is noise. Okay? Uh, And not spiritual in that sense. So then he goes on and says, There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and none is without meaning. He is not saying that tongues are meaningless babble. He's saying that that non-understood tongues are meaningless babble to the person who doesn't know the meaning. If I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. The Greeks used the word barbarian for someone who was speaking another language. They would go, bar, 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 what, what, what is that, right? So they call them barbarians because they're talking nonsense language. They're not talking nonsense language, Paul says. But if you don't know it, it's nonsense to you. And if they don't know your language, what you say is nonsense to them. So he says, since you're zealous of spiritual gifts, you want the manifestation of God's spirit in you, in the community of faith, then you seek to abound to the edification of the church. The priority of the community of faith is the benefit of the common good. That's why God gave us the gifts. Didn't give them to me to start my own business. He gave them to me to minister to the body. He gave us differing gifts. He gives them unevenly so that we will become part of each other as we bring those gifts uh, together in in our gatherings. So, he has done that, uh, and now uh, he wants us to know that there is a specific purpose and a content to the tongue. And that's found in verse Um, 13. He says, Therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. This is important. The person who has this gift should be seeking understanding of what they're saying. And he's going to give an example here. He says, Therefore, Let the one who speaks in a tongue pray may understand. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Some people think it's the Holy Spirit. It's not. It's a spiritual gift. It's a gift of the Spirit. But it's the human spirit praying. And he says, my mind is unfruitful. Even I don't know what I'm saying. So what shall I do? I will pray with the Spirit. And with the mind. I will sing with the spirit and with the mind. He says, I'm going to pray that I understand what I'm saying and singing in my praise and worship privately of God. So that can be shared with the community and so they can benefit from it too. That's why he says, pray that you may uh, interpret. Otherwise, he says, 
When you bless in the spirit, you're blessing God. How will one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks? Says he doesn't know what you're saying. You are giving thanks well. That's what's going on. Tongues is the human spirit praying in praise and adoration to God. It's not communication from God to the church. That's a different gift. These are terribly confused. They're ignored in some parts of the church and they're abused in other parts of the church. You are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Now Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than y'all, Southern Baptists. Right? However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue that doesn't do me or anybody else any good. Now that means that Paul's prayer life was significantly inclusive of tongues. There are times when your mind has no idea what to say to God. But your spirit is crying out, begging to God. And it may sound like babble and groanings to you. But your spirit is communicating with the spirit of God. And God knows what's going on. But it doesn't, no one around you any good. So now he's going to give an understanding that I think, the more I read these in commentaries, the more I wonder, where are these guys going to school? But that's all right. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 to 25, he says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. In evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So he's now going to give us a deeper understanding that I think some people choke on. In the law, it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, talking of Israel. And even so, they will not listen to me. Now, Paul says in the law, this quote is actually coming from the book of Isaiah. But it is in reference to the law and texts that go back into there. And he's using this in, the, in a broader sense. He's basically saying, the scriptures say that I'm going to speak to my people in stammering lips and other tongues. And still, the majority of them will not get me. And if you read this chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 28, the people are going, very, they're really diligent about studying the word. Here they're precepts. They've got a systematic theology completely, but they don't get it. And then they're using wine to teeter and totter and prophecy and all this kind of stuff. And he says, I'm going to speak through stammering lips in another tongue. And what basically is going to happen is a remnant of Israel will hear me. And a larger part of Israel will not hear me at that time. And that's what happened at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, they were all in one place. I know people think it's the birth of the church, but there are, no, there are very few Gentiles there at that time. And none of them are Christians, right? Exactly. The reality is this is Israel gathering together from the diaspora. 
coming in from all the countries where they have come and where they speak the languages of all the countries around them. But when they come to the temple, they will hear Hebrew. And so that's what they're expecting. And all of a sudden, you've got tongues of fire above this group of people and they're all speaking in these languages and they're speaking the praises of God. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who brought us out of Egypt. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who kept us through the Maccabean revolt. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who's bringing your Messiah. To... All those things are being said. And I'm going, what the heck is going on? And those who know the languages, the diaspora Jews, go, we hear them speaking in the language of our country that we're in, the mighty praises of God. But the ones who only know the establishment, they're going, these people are drunk. They're talking nonsense. They're doing that Isaiah stuff. There's a problem. They're getting it backwards. Now, why is that important? The Jews from the diaspora heard the mighty works of God through the praises of their diaspora languages. They heard God's word in the language of others. But the rest mocked what they did because they didn't even understand their own scriptures, bringing the Isaiah passage to truth. This is a difficult understanding because the Pentecostal and charismatic theology have usurped Pentecost as the birth of the Gentile church along with the rest of the church, rather than the birth of the Jewish remnant church to which the Gentiles would later be added. Now I believe God dispersed Israel among the nations. So that they would be a light to those nations. And then when the gospel came out to the Jew first. And also to the Gentile. Those Gentiles should be joining themselves to the Jewish community in those nations. So that when God gathers Israel back from the nations. He will gather others with him as Isaiah says. It's, it's all right there. But if you don't get it. If you take a verse here. Take a verse here. Take a verse here. You get all kinds of weird doctrines. You got to look at them in their context. And in the broader context of the scriptures. So, Paul now is going to give us a basic structure of the assembly. He says basically, tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to those who don't believe. It's a sign that they have the blindness of God on them because they don't believe. That partial hardening that Paul talks about, it's a sign of that, not that they're being abandoned, but that that is there. But prophecy... Explaining of the scriptures are for those who believe. Now again, we've turned it in. It's for non-Christians. They hear it and that's just, just not the case. So, he now is going to give us the structure of the assembly. Verses 26 to 33. He says, if, you, if the church gathers together... Uh, I want to finish 23. If the church gathers together and everybody's speaking in tongues... Those who are ungifted and unbelievers who might happen to be there, uh, they'll think you're crazy. Okay? But if everyone is prophesying, if everyone is speaking the word of God, everyone is speaking truth and the experiences and the praises of God, the unbeliever or the ungifted one will be convicted by all and called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. His spirit is in you manifesting himself. So that's his point. If we miss the point, 
then we don't function correctly. So now, what is the function? Verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, uh, interpretation, the tongue with the interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be two or the most three, each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and then let him speak to himself and to God. Go home and pray for interpretation and shut up in the community. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Are they speaking correctly or are they not speaking correctly? This is one of the reasons why we do the Q&A and why once in a while when we've said something from the pulpit that we realized was an error, we, we bring it up and, and mention it to you. If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So there's a discussion going on. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and all be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. The spirit doesn't take control of you. It prompts you. For God is not a God of confusion, but of shalom, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, I want to tell you what Paul, I think, is talking about. He's giving us the basic structure for the gathering of the believers. This is not a worship service. This is not a liturgy for the Christian church. The Jewish believers started out participating in the Sabbath liturgies in the synagogues, and the God-fearers and the early Christians did the same until they were removed. And then they established their own synagogues, and those synagogues probably operated with very little difference to the regular ones because it was a Jewish institution. But there was a time where there was an overlap between the belief in Yeshua and the traditional framework. So at home, gathering uh, for Shabbat with the family, walking to shul or the synagogue uh, Shabbat morning, and then at the end of the Sabbath, the Havdalah service, that period between the end of the Sabbath and the beginning of the first day began to be a popular time for the believers in Yeshua to come, in part because his resurrection took place uh, after sundown on Saturday. And so the Havdalah became uh, connected to the first day of the week, not the next morning, but that evening. And they would gather and they would be in, engage in the body life. The liturgy was done in the morning. They had done that. Uh, now they were gathering together and their, their abilities to help administer and understand one another. And it became very popular. Later that got separated from Shabbat and turned into a whole separate Lord's Day by creating a liturgy for the Sunday morning. But the idea was that they were gathered. We see this in the book of Acts when Paul's ready to, to go with them and he, he's going to leave the next morning, which will be Sunday morning, the first day of the week. And they're meeting and gathering and Eutychus falls out of the window and uh, Paul has to raise him back up. They would gather because this was a time when they could rejoice in the presence of God among them and God could be manifest among them. Can't do that in a formal liturgy. It can be done in a gathering. These are home gatherings. These are family gatherings. These are people who know each other and trust each other and depend on each other. These are not evangelistic services. They are body life, discipleship, bringing together the body of Christ with the manifestation of the Spirit of God 
connected to his word and his covenants being manifest in a group of people. And occasionally, an unbeliever would be brought in and go, God God is here. So, he says, they'll gather at the Havdalah, I think. Uh, They would gather likely in homes. They'd observe a common meal called an agape. They'd engage in communal life. He gives them commands to come together and that each person is prepared to bring some. Now, you guys know I don't like uh, what are traditionally called potlucks. I call them tough lucks because you've got to eat whatever people bring, right? Uh, But the reality is the gathering of the body is a potluck of the gifts of the spirit in the community of faith. And we come together and partake of the wisdom and the instruction and the creativity and the things that each of the members have come, which you can't do in a formal liturgy because everybody's got to sit there and listen to one nut talk. And I get to be that nut. But that's the issue. This is something else. It's supplemental to that. And I think it's at the heart of what community life is about. So he says... You do about two or three of each of these things. In other words, don't have everybody doing it. But over time, all of you can do it. But two or three should be done. If you think about it, uh, we do two or three songs. We do two or three prayers. That's, that's that basic pattern. So the prophets can speak. The others judge. We take turns. There's all of that. Now, he gives a proviso in verses 34 and 35. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves as the law says. And if they will desire anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, this verse has been used in many, many arbitrary and dangerous ways. I was doing a camp one time for a Plymouth Brethren group, and I had just led the music, and I turned to the woman who was on the piano, and I said, would you lead us in prayer? And she went, no, no, And I said, would you pray? No, 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 Because in their churches, she couldn't even say no to me. Okay? I think that's a misunderstanding of this text. If you go back to where Paul talked about the woman and the husband, and the woman, uh, the, the, the man, the woman came from the man, all Men are born of women, and he talks about that. He's talking about marriage. So I think this should be translated wives. The wives should be careful in the church. Not permitted to interrupt or to argue with their husbands in the body, which creates discord and disunity. If they want to learn something, they need clarification, they should ask that at home. Because if one person asked me, well, what do you think about this? It's interpreted one way. If Linda asked me, it might be interpreted another way. Oh, are they fighting? So the idea is this self-limitation that Paul's been talking about for the benefit of the body. Particularly because if I'm saying something, my family has access to me all the rest of the week. They can ask their questions. We're not disrupting the body for personal gain. We're doing it for communal benefit. I think this verse has been terribly misunderstood and mistranslated. Now Paul's going to give us a... uh, Well, let me say why I think this is important. 
if I am teaching this and constantly uh, a wife is saying, I don't think that's right. I don't want to tell her husband, you know, because she'll do that, right? We'll do that, all of us. But, but we do that with people we're closest to. Then he doesn't hear what he needs to hear, and that will affect his uh, ministry to his family at home. So the goal here is for those who know. So I believe that this would apply also to children and to the uncatechized. Uh, In other words, the congregational gathering is for the mature adults. It's not for children and newbies and seekers. That's done elsewhere. Because once a church or a congregation drops to that level, it bores the heck out of everybody else and there is no development. So the, the gathering is for those operating at their level of maturity and nothing should disrupt that. We can supplement that in the home and in other, other contexts. Husbands have a responsibility to be at the gathering to learn and then instruct these things in their own homes uh, to their wives and children. I believe that um, in a family situation, if only one person from the family can attend the service, it should be the husband, if, if at all possible. And then he should relay that information. That's not about privilege. That's about responsibility. Uh, and, and that's, I think, an important thing. So in 1 Corinthians 14.36, now Paul says this. A verse that, when I first actually read it, it just startled me. This was back when I was in high school. Uh, he says... Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? This is a slapdown of anybody who thinks there's something in the authority of God. First of all, I'm a Gentile. The word of God didn't come to me. It came to Israel so that they could be a light to me. And it didn't come to Israel only, but it expands to the rest. There is, a, there is a, a notion here that the word of God is God's word sent for his purposes to accomplish what he wants done. And we don't own it. We don't make merchandise of it. We don't control it. We respond to it because it is the word of our God and our Father. So he says this. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. I am constantly introduced to people who are prophets and apostles and bishops and all kinds of things. Uh, That always bothers me. Uh, particularly when I listen to what they have to say and what their ministry is about, and it's clear that they don't know much about the biblical text. They know verses that they've ripped out of context for their prophetic word or prophetic ministry. They don't really have a grounding in there. What Paul is saying is, if there is a prophet among you, if there's a bishop among you, if there's a spiritual person among you, that person will acknowledge significantly the teachings of this apostle in his own context. And if they reject that, then they're to be rejected. The way it's said in another place, if they speak not according to the law and the testimony, 
It's because there is no light in them. So we want to be careful about people who manipulate biblical texts and don't fall in humble, uh, speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. Uh, there's There's that humility and love that has to be there. So he says, if anyone does not recognize this, he's not to be recognized. So now he concludes, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. That's the focus, because those gifts on that end of the spectrum are all primarily about communicating and benefiting the brother. But don't forbid to speak with tongues. That is a spiritual gift. It has a place. Its primary place is in the prayer life of the individual, but it can, if understood, be used in the context of the community. And then he says, but all things must be done decently and in order, properly and in order. We are not a hodgepodge. You've been... You probably have family that does this. You've been with a bunch of friends who are all there and they're all talking over each other and all doing stuff. And when it's all done, they had a great time. But nobody was benefited from the conversation. Nobody knew what anybody said. And then when they go back later, so-and-so said that. I thought he said this, right? So when we gather, we need to pay attention to the gifting that God has placed within the body so that we can gain all that God has given us Because he gave it to us to be used by all of us and not by individuals in that sense. So, Paul then is going to move on to the heart of the gospel in the next chapter. And we'll do that next time. Let's pray.